Hello, I'm Mary Ambrose, and this is the CG Podcast. One of the biggest issues facing us as global citizens is the displacement of millions of people. Driven from their homes mostly by war, we now see the largest number of people on the move since World War II. The world has seen this many times before, but we don't seem to get smarter at dealing with it. We're still failing to respond in a coordinated, efficient, and effective manner. Short-term solutions are not the answer. Sensible plans have been proposed, but to build consensus and really get traction requires star power. Enter Lloyd Axworthy. In Canada, we know Lloyd Axworthy as a politician so beloved, he was in the cabinet of three prime ministers. The world knows him as a big thinker with serious big ideas, and that's who he's always been. When Axworthy was in grade 11, his class went to the Winnipeg Civic Auditorium to hear Lester B. Pearson speak. Pearson had already won the Nobel Peace Prize for settling the Suez Crisis, and Pearson enthralled the young Axworthy. And when he left that auditorium, Lloyd Axworthy has said that for the first time, he really understood who he was in terms of a political scene. His work on reducing landmines worldwide won him a Nobel Peace Prize nomination. In the tradition of the great statesman Lester Pearson, Lloyd Axworthy is tackling our poor response to people seeking asylum. CG and Mr. Axworthy are launching the World Refugee Council. The World Refugee Council will develop and promote more effective, humane, predictable yet innovative global cooperation on refugees. Let's talk about refugees with the broader vision of global citizens. I found a lovely phrase that you wrote that frames refugees not as a charity concern, but as a human rights issue. If you allow me to read it, I'll ask you to explain it. Quote, the right to asylum is one of the oldest of human rights and one of the original expressions of our shared humanity. Well, it's true because if you go back into biblical text and look at the historical records of Greek city-states or Rome, you'll find that in so many cases they have provided special places and spaces in the cities for people fleeing persecution where they can be uh, immune from the attack and the victimization and the harassment of those pursuing them. So the whole idea of belonging somewhere, of actually having a place in which you feel protected, uh, to me is a foundation for human rights. If you don't have that fundamental protection, then the rest of the rights uh, can't be built. We as a global community have sort of a historical track record of doing a somewhat better job than this, though there were less people on the move. How and why do you think we're getting this so wrong now? Well, I think partly because we're in a period where there is a frontal and sideways attack against the whole notion of sanctuary and refuge and an attempt to restore some outmoded version of sovereignty where uh, states and nations are built around some notion of purity of ethnicity or culture. Uh, It's become a political football that's kicked in by the, the worst teams in the world, but they are also uh, providing entertainment and 
as a result, the crowds come to support. And I think that's one of the, if I can just use that sporting metaphor, the, you know, the result is that we're finding the opportunity for people to make choices based upon their, their on their rights uh, is being extinguished because if you don't have a, if you don't belong, if you don't have a piece of paper, if you're not certified to vote, if you're not given uh, a degree of engagement or commitment from a, a state, uh, an entity, then you become invisible. And I think that's really part of the problem. We've, uh, we've over-mystified the notion of refugees and forget that they're people who are escaping calamity for them and their families. I know that you were in Germany when the Syrian refugees began to arrive there, and one of the things that you've mentioned is that you were struck by the amount of misinformation swirling around that, and that may have contributed to this atmosphere. Can you tell me about that? Uh, I, Mayor, the experience in Germany is really instructive. I was there as a uh, fellow of the Bosch Foundation to primarily talk about the Canadian model for refugee acceptance, because I've, we are seen in the world as a country that has worked hard at public policy and at uh, effective means of bringing people here and settling them. So that that was the beginning. But I arrived at that time just shortly after Chancellor Merkel had opened the gate and a million people who had been fleeing their own crises of various sorts uh, poured in. And all of a sudden, you saw this... Uh, very big, very important, very democratic country wrestling uh, with uh, what it believed in. What were the values that it had? And there were those who go, went back to the original constitution of Germany uh, after the Second World War. Uh, but there were those who began to restore those old arguments about uh, German for the Germans, and that we can't risk terrorism, and it, it became part of that pantheon of, of fear and of, of threat. Uh, and as a result, it really did create you know, very centrally the a political debate that is now being seen around the world, uh, seen certainly in the neighbor to the south of us, certainly seen and now in parts of Africa, certainly in Eastern Europe. And it's spreading, this idea that you can define yourself uh, through a, a limited set of choices. And uh, I think that's what part of the work of the council is to how do we get back to that kind of liberal world order uh, in which people are given the right to make choices about their lives because they have a degree of human security, but they also are being given the, the right to be able to use it in a way that represents their, their interests. And right now, we're treating the refugees as a as some kind of subspecies or a criminal species uh, with not giving them uh, the, the full respect that they require. You were raised in a very multicultural neighborhood of Winnipeg, and you were part of an active church community. You went to Princeton, where you were active in the civil rights movement. Is the treatment of refugees the big social issue of our time? Will we be judged as we have judged others? Uh, it is uh, a social issue of our time. It's going to be the social issue in very short future ahead of us because the, the causes, the sources of people fleeing, of leaving their home state, their homeland, 
is becoming even more uh, severe. Conflicts continue to force people to uh, seek some kind of protection. Uh, the changing environment and climate means that uh, your ability to survive is again threatened. I, it doesn't matter to me, uh, and I don't think it matters to the people if your high risk is from some 14-year-old uh, kid with a MK-47 peering at you or uh, a drought that's lasted 48 days and you no longer have water or food for your children. Same thing. Uh, they are not being given the kind of um, support that an organized and uh, responsible, just community should provide. And that's where I think the international uh, community must take more responsibility, must become more involved, and that we can't simply leave this to border control or internal political sort of uh, cycles. We have to really begin to build some longer-term institutions and practices and maybe norms and beliefs. Uh, do you want to connect refugees the way um, we've fought anti-Semitism, the way we fought racism, and, and make it put it more in the feminist mode of kind of embracing all and, you know, open, this is feminism's good for women, but it's also good for men. Are you hoping to kind of put it in that political realm? Well, you know, one, of the, one of the hopes uh, I would have for the Refugee Council would be that it provides a, a for in which uh, those voices can be heard. There aren't many places today where there's a serious debate going on. You know, there's a political debate, which is all about uh, terrorism and security and uh, what, are, what kind of corruption will resolve if people different from ourselves. So the whole debate about the responsibility we bear to it, uh, even in our own country, is, is not taking place in a significant way. And yet, I think there is a real appetite uh, in the public, for for learning more, for understanding more, for for finding out what happens when you become a refugee. What a what's the what's the loss that carries in your psyche that you you no longer have an anchor that you can say is home, and the trauma that you go through and having to make these very uh, traumatic moves. Then uh, those are things that we have to you know, begin to. Uh, open up and welcome. And um, the part of the problem, and I think, uh, you know, uh, the Dean of Law at UBC has put it very, very well, that we are criminalizing refugees. Uh, there's a, a very nasty uh, attempt by uh, certain political right-wing groups to sort of say, these are the enemies at the gate, and we have to build the wall higher. And you can draw that conclusion of what wall we're talking about, but it's happening everywhere. And I think the only way you break down walls is by opening up the gate. So let's get uh, specific about the World Refugee Council. I know that you went to Silicon Valley looking for new ideas and probably found a few. What kind of things have you found, or can you give me an example of something that could really help refugees change their lives, improve their lives? Well, I think a beginning point is that uh, the governance system uh, is broken down internationally. Going back to the 1951 convention, which was uh, designed as a response to the large movement of uh, refugees in Europe that was very clearly 
derivative of that experience and the definition of a, of a refugee. And all of a sudden you're finding that sometimes those definitions don't work. And secondly, um, there has become... What, I'm sorry, what do you mean they don't work? Well, uh, how do you define a refugee in, in the world today? Is it uh, somebody who's just escaping uh, the secret police who's going to arrest you if you go back? Are you escaping a bombing uh, situation or the threat of a, a warlord and militia who are going to grab your kid and turn them into a child soldier? Or are you also escaping famine and drought and uh, the breakdown of uh, the uh, sustainable community that you live in? Uh, and yet, uh, in my view, uh, each of these need to be given some real consideration. And that's where, going to be, where, that's where part of the debate has to occur. We have to decide what, what will be those international institutions and rules of law that will pertain so that we make sure that uh, the rights are there. But at the same time, you know, people moving to another country also um, need to uh, work within those countries and respect their laws and their customs so it's, it's not just uh, one big movement. I mean, I think we have to begin getting away from the idea that it's a... a, a one large mass with no differentiation. I think that's the whole point of it. There's such a, a large and, and different set of experiences. And we just have to learn. Um, you know, I, I, I was just today teaching a group of students about the experience in the Balkans during the Balkans War when I was a foreign minister and uh, where we actually stopped the fighting and stopped the conflict. But we're so good in building the Constitution after because we, uh, we being Western countries, Europeans, Canada, Americans, put in place a Constitution that froze ethnicity in, in as a re, as a long-term reality. You can't build a democracy if everybody sees themselves only through the lens of um, their historical background. You were on the forefront of creating a legally binding treaty against the use uh, against the use of landmines. Huge success. You should be very proud of that. And you got 162 countries signed up. Do you think it's possible? Is this going to be a harder sell to get people on board? That's, I would think it would be. How is it going? Uh, it's probably too early to tell, but it's certainly not. Uh, for lack of trying. I think we're just really at the beginning of a process. And that uh, the landmine treaty came about because there had already been a lot of uh, dialogue and debate uh, generated. Uh, I think the role that Canada played was to bring the different players together, the NGO community, the Coalition Against Landmines, the International Red Cross that could give you chapter and verse on what Norman Schwarzkopf uh, said about why landmines don't work. Uh, it could bring together different countries, middle-sized countries to begin with, the Dutch and the Austrians and the um, people from Moz you know, the victims from Mozambique who could all get involved and start talking about uh, their related experiences. So it, it did take some emulsion to bring those pieces together. That kind of a partnership is part of, I think, the new politics of the world that we live in. Um, what Canada did was provide some leadership. Uh, somebody, you know, has to kind of uh, hire the hall and uh, open up the dialogue. And I, you know, the certainly uh, we start already with a uh, 
recognition in so many parts of the world, but Canada is one of the few places left where this dialogue is taking place and where it can provide that leadership because the uh, the government, uh, Mr. Trudeau's government, has said that pluralism, openness, uh, is part of the what makes our Canada democracy work. It's not something to be feared. It's something to be welcomed. So with that as a as a base. So you're the guy for this. Well, I, I hope so. But there's there are others. I mean, we've got. Uh, that's that's why it's really important to bring together uh, a kind of a, a, a cluster of well-known and active people who have either been in the uh, in politics and diplomacy and government and academia in business together because I think each brings uh, a different legitimacy and a different set of of concerns and credibilities with them. Uh, this is not a you know a, a one-person show or a ten-person show. I think that uh, I think we've been able to. Uh, recruit uh, some really incredible uh, world leaders to, to come together around this issue. And if, if the right combustion takes place, and I think that's the job of the council is to uh, in, encourage all that, then I think we can provide real service to policymakers, to the public, to the media uh, about what's really going on in the world and how we have to start taking much more seriously some of the issues that right now are under the rug. We don't talk about, as I said earlier, uh, how do you share the burden? Why is it that Jordan, one of the poorest countries in the world, has four million refugees and there, there aren't enough uh, people donating to make sure that they all get fed or the, that they have a home? And there's you know, different points of view. You've got a, Mary, you've got a system where some European countries are paying off dictators in order to restrict the flow of refugees. That's against the law. That's a, totally against international standards and mores. So uh, we have to be able to and have the independence, and that's one of the real advantages of having this kind of a council. It's got good, experienced practitioners and idea people, but it's independent. It's not subject to sort of the briefing notes of a bureaucracy. If you could get one thing from all these countries, what would the one thing be? Uh, well, I, I, you know, I would like to go back a little bit on the governance issue. I think that really uh, an area that is almost uh, invisible for lack of attention is the idea that we're going to have to take a look at a serious reform at the international level and that we have to really uh, reform of the uh, institutions and practices by which we collaborate and cooperate on issues that are global in their scope and, and impact. And right now... Like uh, the UN? I'm trying to think of what well, those things Well, the UN is, uh, is a, uh, I, it's a multilateral institution, and it has within a, an agency that deals with the refugees. But uh, I'm talking about uh, some laws and some treaties in which there is... a well-defined agreement, a reciprocal agreement, because what we have learned is that we, if we uh, try to uh, simply row by ourselves, we're going to sink. If we row together, we can, we can move. And that's what really concerns me right now, is that I think the advent of very large numbers of people fleeing uh, for, from fear uh, is going to overcome and swamp so many of our practices and there will be panic, and there will be retribution, and there will be pushback, and that's going to lead to a very unpleasant world. 
Mr. Axworthy, I wish you all the luck in the world uh, with this project. And I thank you very much for joining us on the CG podcast. Let's do it again. Lloyd Axworthy is a former cabinet minister in more than one Canadian government. He's been on the world stage making life better for people for decades. His latest project is working with CG to build the World Refugee Council. You can read all about it on the World Refugee Council website, which is worldrefugeecouncil.org. You can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you get your podcast and follow big thinkers like Mr. Axworthy. I'm Mary Ambrose.